series that we are in right now is called, What Does the Bible Say About? And the idea in this series is we would like to, each sermon is going to be on a new topic, and we're just going to look at what does the Bible say about that particular topic. And this allows us to do a couple of things. One, it allows us to cover a lot of different things that people are interested in, things that may not fit into a normal sermon series. Also, it allows us to demonstrate uh, how we can answer questions that we have about what Scripture says. Uh, you will notice in your bulletin that you have a card where you can submit questions. What does the Bible say about? And we got some great questions last week. Uh, there is no limit to how many times you can submit, so feel free to submit more as they, as they come upon you. You can put it in the same place you put your connection card when you've written that down. If you are online, then in the digital sanctuary, there's a button at the top that says, what does the Bible say about you? You can click there and you can submit questions to us electronically. Um, so with us, the ones that come up the most, the ones that seem the most pertinent, we're going to turn into sermons starting in July and August. The others we're going to address during our live broadcast that happens on YouTube and Facebook at 3 p.m. on Thursdays. And you can, they stay up once we've done them, so you can watch them later. This last week, we had a conversation about what the Bible says about singleness. And this coming Thursday, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about creation's place, the created world's place in eternity. Uh, the question that inspired that is, uh, basically, do pets go to heaven? And uh, so we're going to talk about that, but the way we're framing it is we're going to look at what is the role of creation in eternity. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Today, however, we are still in the topics that, that the staff and I chose together to get us started to kind of prime the pump. And this topic is one that I think is really important. It builds well off of last week when we talked about what the Bible says about itself. But it's also a subject that is, is really pertinent to people and their, their faith. And their, uh, for a lot of people, myself included, this question has been a challenge in their, their, uh, whether or not they feel like they can believe in Jesus. What we're going to talk about is what does the Bible say about science? And the way this sermon is going to be structured is we're going to start out looking at the question behind the question. Why are we even asking, what does the Bible say about science? I mean, we could ask a lot of questions, like, what does the Bible say about unicorns? There is actually a translation that says something about unicorns. But that, you know, but we don't have as much invested in that question as we do in this. So we're going to start by asking, why, uh, what's the question behind the question? Then we're going to look at what the Bible says about science. And finally, we're going to draw some conclusions about what it, what the Bible's testimony about science means for us as Christians going forward. So let's start by asking, why are we talking about science? Science and scripture have often been portrayed as competing sources of truth that make conflicting claims about reality. There is, uh, you can find lots of information on the war between science and religion, on this idea that religion or Christianity or scripture makes certain claims and, and the and science makes opposite claims, and there's a battle to see which one is right. Now, I would argue that most of this war is manufactured. It's not real. Uh, it actually has some important historical reasons. Part of it has to do... It's amazing how many of the problems the church faces are, are kind of our own making. The original idea that, that Christianity was anti-science came from Protestants saying that Catholicism was anti-science. And they would make all these accusations against Catholicism, and they made up this story about how the church persecuted Galileo for believing the earth went around the sun when Scripture teaches something different. That wasn't at all what happened. 
uh, like at all, it was because his math was wrong, um, and none of the other scientists agreed with him that they didn't let him publish. But they made this whole thing about how Catholics are anti-Christian, and then that turned over time into all Catholics are anti-science, which turned into this whole thing of Christians are anti-science. Another part of it is the phenomenon we talked about last week, which is the idea that we look at the Bible as a textbook. And we look at it as like an encyclopedia. And in an encyclopedia, anything that says about anything is, the same, is said the exact same way. It's all statements of fact. And so if the Bible is a textbook, then if you want to find out about science, you can open your Bible textbook and you can find what the Bible says about science. And those are your scientific facts. But if you open a, a, an actual textbook, you'll find different claims of fact. And those disagree. And so there's this war. It, a a large, part, large part of it comes out of how we view, view the Bible. And the reason this is an issue is because whenever they seem to conflict, we are then forced to choose sides between the Bible and science. We have to pick a side. Which one are we going to believe? And this has kept a lot of people from becoming Christians. I've been reading a fascinating book lately by an agnostic historian about how he basically, um, he wrote a book about the history of his own belief system. He said, what I've found is, I'm a Christian. In every meaningful way, I'm a Christian in terms of what I believe about right and wrong and, and my view of the world, in every way except for what I believe about God. And the reason he didn't believe, so you see, that's why he's agnostic. He didn't believe in God because he loved dinosaurs when he was a kid, and what he heard in Sunday school was different from what he read in his dinosaur books, and he was more convinced by the dinosaur books than his Sunday school teachers. Um, it also creates crises for people who already believe, and it can cause them to fall away or to really struggle. Um, because they have to pick a side. I'm going to believe one or the other. And all of my faith is now at stake in the answer to these questions. Because we've said the Bible is an encyclopedia. And if you're going to have a trustworthy encyclopedia, uh, it all has to be accurate, right? And so when we say the Bible is an encyclopedia, that means that our belief in Jesus is dependent on the Bible winning all of these debates on all these different topics. So now our belief in Jesus is at stake every time we see a conflict between science and the Bible. Which is why there are whole ministries spending millions of dollars trying to de defend really obscure claims of fact in the Bible, or really obscure things in the Bible that they take as claims of fact, because they think the gospel is at stake. So this creates a crisis of faith. And the question behind the question is, can I trust what the Bible says about science? The short answer is yes. You can trust what the Bible says about science. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. No, sorry. Because here's the thing, where we get off, where we get, get, get you know, where, where things get muddled is when we try to understand what the Bible says about science. You can trust what the Bible says about science, but what I would say is that so often the ways we get caught up and flustered and in these fights and debates is we're making claims that the Bible doesn't make about science. And so we end up fighting and we're... we're we're defending the Bible in something it didn't say. So we want to make sure when we say, can we trust what the Bible says about science, that we actually know what the Bible says about science. So that's what we're going to do now. And if you, were here, if you weren't here for last week's sermon, we talked about the fact that we were looking at what the Bible says about itself and the fact that the Bible has a goal. It's not just some general purpose reference work. It, is, it exists to help us meet Jesus and know how to follow him. That is the purpose of Scripture. It is not an all-purpose reference book. It is there to teach us to follow, to, to encounter, help us encounter Jesus and to teach us to follow him. Remember that because that will prepare you for what I'm about to say because there have been times in my faith journey when I would have not been ready to hear this. 
but this is what we find in Scripture. The Bible does not make scientific claims. It uses the science of the day to make claims about God. You know, this can be a bit tricky, so I'm going to try and make sure it's, it's very clear. What I'm saying is that when the Bible is talking, it is in no point that I can know that I know of is the Bible is the point of a passage to teach you something about how the world works. Because there is no point in Scripture when the Bible it says anything about the way the world works that the people it's speaking to didn't already believe. There is no new information in the Bible about how the world works that would have been new to the people who heard it. It's always using things they already thought about the universe to talk about God. I can give you a couple of examples. But when you're making an argument, when you're convincing someone of something, it's the new information that's the point. Right? It's not like the stuff that the people already know. That's not the point. The point is the new information you introduce. Well, let's look at a, uh, first a pretty easy example. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord with God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, we're used to this kind of terminology, so we skip over the scientific error in this passage. Anybody notice a blatant, obvious scientific error? You do not love with your heart. Your heart is a muscle. You can't love with your heart any more than you can love with your bicep. Right? Now, for us, that's figurative language, right? That's, oh, clearly that's poetic. But the reason we have that as figurative language is because they used to believe that literally. And so, and we still read things where they say that, like the Bible. So we take our poetic imagery from what they literally believed about how the human body works. That's why Hebrew had no word for brain, because they didn't know what the mush in your head did. So they actually thought that you think and you feel with your heart. Okay? So... But the point isn't, God didn't say, well, it turns out that much in your head is important. That's where you think, so love me with all of your brain. That's not what he said. He, he said, love me with all of your heart. Because the point isn't to teach you which part of you loves. The point is, whatever part of you loves, love me with all of it. Whatever it is, that thing, whatever you think it is, love me with all of it. And I know that this is the point because Jesus quotes this passage in Mark and he misquotes it. He actually updates it. In Mark, uh, he's speaking to an audience that is heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And the Greeks, because the Greeks conquered Jerusalem and they made everybody learn Greek, and that's why the New Testament was written in Greek, so heavily Greek influenced. And the Greeks believed that the mush in your head did something. They actually believed that you thought with your head. So when Jesus is speaking to a Greek-influenced culture, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, he is quoting. He's saying that this is what the law says. And he adds, your mind. Because the point isn't to tell you which part of your body you love. The point is, whatever part of it it is, love me with all of it. If it's your heart, if you think it's your heart, love me with all your heart. If you think it's your mind, love me with all your mind. Whatever it is, love me with all. I don't care if it's your foot that you think does your thinking. Love me with every toe. Right? Like, that's the point. He's saying something about God. Now, you can laugh along with that because this is something in which we have very little stake. But now I'm actually going to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit. I'm going to get into... I'm going to get to something, something a bit more weighty, okay? We're going to look at Genesis 1, but first, I'm going to show you a picture, or a, an illustration. This illustration is of the ancient Near East conce uh, concept of what the world looks like, okay? So you'll notice the land is right here, flat, it comes out of the water, and then there is this dome called the firmament, which is a hard dome that holds back an ocean, which makes sense. I mean, what falls out of the water every once in a while? 
more often here. Water, right? What color is the sky? Blue. What other big blue wet thing do we know? The ocean. So there's an ocean up there, right? It makes sense. And the sun, moon, and stars, they run along the inside of the firmament. That was how the ancient world thought of the universe, okay? Now, let's look at Genesis 1. Because when I, back in my days of wanting to debate uh, creation versus evolution, uh, we always focused on how long the days were and the order that things happened in. And somehow in all my study, during those days of just wanting to argue with people, I never noticed this part. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Uh, pause. That word vault, is, that's not a great translation. It's, it comes from beating out a shield. That's the word that the King James called firmament. It's actually a hard thing. It's a dome. Let there be a dome between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault to separate the water under the vault from the water above the vault. And it was so. Now, in my head, that was the sky, and it separated the water from the water in the clouds, right? But this is saying there's a hard thing that holds back an ocean. And, and then when you connect it with a later day, it says this. The Lord, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. What is it just being described in Genesis 1? There's land. There's the vault with the sun, moon, and stars in the vault, and the water is above the vault. Right? So the way Genesis 1 describes it, the water is above the sun, moon, and stars. However you put it together, however many days it took, that's how it's structured, because it's exactly what the people of that time would have expected to hear. Now, this may challenge what, the way you read Genesis 1. I'm not trying to change the way anybody reads Genesis 1. The one thing I would say is that this is a literal reading of Genesis 1. Anything else is not 100% literal. And it bothers me when some people will say, well, we're the ones translating it literally, when in reality they just draw the line between what they get from Scripture and what they get from science differently. Everybody combines the two in a little different way. Every perspective does. And there are a lot of valid ways to do that. There isn't one that we take the Bible seriously and everybody else doesn't. Because the point of this passage is not to tell you how the universe works. The point of, because they didn't tell them anything new. They didn't need to be told that the world looked this way. What they needed to be told was that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because everybody else was telling them that in the beginning, Marduk killed this chaos monster and ripped the body in half, and the corpse became the earth. And, there, and the world is born out of blood and battle, and there's no real way to know who's in charge or who's going to win, because it's all chaos underneath. That's what they had been told. And what they're being told is that God did it, and it wasn't a battle, it wasn't a struggle. He did it because he wanted to. He was in control the whole time, and, it, and he made it the way he wanted that's what Genesis 1 is definitely telling us about God. It's not making a claim about actual, the particular scientific facts. It's making a claim about God and his role in creation. And so when we read what the Bible says about science, we need to remember that the focus is on God. Okay? Now, does that mean, if the, if the Bible doesn't include scientific facts, that it doesn't make any, that it doesn't have any relevance to science? No. That does not mean that. And in fact, I would argue that the Bible lays at the very foundation of modern science. That without the Bible, we would never have had modern science. And here's why. One of the myths you've been told is this idea that 
um, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, had philosophy and science, and they were doing great, and then Christianity became popular, and they said, no, we're only going to read the Bible, we're not going to use science anymore, and so we went into the dark ages where nobody was learning and nobody was doing anything, they were just blindly reading scripture, and Galileo got persecuted somewhere in there, and then we started to, the power of the church started to crack, and people started to rediscover the Greeks, and they started to really investigate and learn, and, and as they broke free of the shackles of religion, science began to flourish. That is complete, completely not true. None of that myth is true. In fact, what actually happened was that in around the 300 BC, this Greek guy named Aristotle said, you know, I think this is the way the world works. And he wrote it down. And everyone, everyone else said, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And for 1,800 years, everybody just went along with what Aristotle said. Even when they're in the Christian era, for 1,800 years, all everybody was going along with what Aristotle said. And the thing that Aristotle, one of the things that Aristotle said was that things do what they do because that's what things do. Like, why does... This is an oversimplification, but... This, why does the sun rise? Because, sun, because that's what's in the sun to do. Like, they have innate properties that cause them to do the things that they do. Suns rise, that's why the sun rises. Birds fly because birds fly. They have it in them to fly. And the thing is, that's kind of a non-starter when it comes to scientific inquiry. If things just do what they do because they do what they do, then you've already got your answer. There's no more that could be learned. It's just what birds do. But what actually happened as people started to go back to Scripture during the Reformation period was they realized that that's not what the Bible taught. Because the Bible teaches a different view. And a great place to see this is in Proverbs. This is, we're going to read a poem that's told from the perspective of wisdom being imagined as a woman who's going around the world inviting people to listen to her. And here's what she says. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon in the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. The image that's being developed here is wisdom in the, in the Hebrew conception is things do, operating properly. Everything's going well. It, it's, it can also be used as, a, the word can be used for skill or talent. It's like when you're doing it right, that's wisdom. Okay? And what, he's, what she's saying here is, I was part of creation, that, that God made the world with wisdom. He made it to work a certain way. Right? He had a design. He, built, he, he wove wisdom, this right way of working, into the universe, and it was his idea. Right? And then she says, come learn from me the wisdom that God built into the universe. What, what the claim that's being made and the claim that Scripture makes is it's not that things do what they do because that's what things do. Things do what they do because God made them to do that. God is in control, and God sets the, sets the agenda. God tells things what to do. The world is governed by the wisdom of God, which is, according to this passage, knowable, right? Because she invites people to know her. And it's also constant. Because God doesn't change. Have you ever wondered, why are we so sure that the laws of nature will never change? That one day the sun will not rise? What guarantee do we have that the laws of nature are actually permanent? What's holding them together? See, people didn't have a reason to assume that before, and so they never thought that the world was governed by laws. 
But when people looked at the biblical perspective and they realized that the universe is controlled by a God who doesn't change, that tells us why the laws are constant. The uh, scientist just uh, who lived, he was also a theologian, just before Isaac Newton, his name was Isaac Barrow, and he said this, the only reason for having confidence that repeated experiments will yield general principles that hold true, which is the basis for the scientific method, is because we can be assured that the laws of nature that God has instituted are constant. We have no reason to believe that nature is inconstant, for that would imply that the great author of the universe is unlike himself. So when they were debating the foundations of the scientific method, and somebody said, hey, how about I do an experiment, and then you do the same experiment, and we'll compare results, and we'll learn from that. And somebody said, well, why would you think that the same thing would happen in both cases? Well, because the same God is in control. There's the same God behind all of it. That's, that's literally where this understanding came from. And that's why science came out of a culture that was based in Scripture. Because science does actually teach us that God is the foundation for, for our understanding of reality. Not only that, but Scripture teaches us, I would argue, to have a very positive view of our capacity to learn and to understand the world around us. Let's look, take a look at another poem, Psalm 8. In this, in this psalm, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is beautiful celebration of God's creation. And what he starts off by saying, wow, God's creation is amazing. And then he looks at himself and he says, wait, I have the ability to understand this and the authority to, to shape it. Whose idea was that? And who thought that was a good idea? Well, it's God. And he's praising God because God gave him the ability to understand the universe around him and the authority to shape it. And that would be a great way, it, before science was ever invented, to talk about science, right? Our ability to understand the world around us and to shape it in particular ways. And that ability is a gift from God. Now, human beings have an amazing capacity to abuse the gifts we've been given. So this is a gift that we misuse. But it is a gift from God. I think one of the downsides of this feeling of being in a constant battle between religion and science is we've been beat down into, into feeling skeptical of science just innately and feeling like, like sometimes people have the perspective that trusting in science or trusting, trusting in, in human ways of addressing problems is unfaithful. You know, when we say, uh, people will say, you, extreme examples would be like, don't use technology, don't go to doctors, like going, using medical facilities is unfit. Those, kind of, those are extreme examples. And, and I would argue that if, science, if our ability to know and shape the world around us is a gift from God, then one of the primary ways God works in our lives is through the gifts he's given to us, right? Statistically, the majority of the healing God does is through physicians and nurses and human beings healing, you know, working on each other, right? Like, statistically. It doesn't mean, I mean, prayer always has to be a part of it, but this is, a, this is something that we can celebrate, that God has given us this gift. It also means we have to be very, we have to use it properly. But it does come from God, and that's, that's a good thing. But I think what, what Scripture really finds essential is where our inquiry of the world leads us to. As we look into creation, what, where, does it, where do we land? At what does it teach us? 
And one of the best places to see this is in the book of Job. I don't have time to recap the whole book of Job, but the basic story is Job is having an argument with God because he, doesn't, he feels like God has mismanaged his life. Basically, Job is asking to see the managers of the world. Right? I, I believe I've, my life's been mishandled. I want to talk to the manager. And the manager shows up. And he shows up in Job 38, 39, and 40 in this brilliant, beautiful, gorgeous poem where he gives Job a tour of the universe. And I'm going to read you just a little bit of it. Please go and read the whole thing. Like I said, it's, it's beautiful. But this is how it's, kind of how it starts. He says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. It sounds kind of confrontational. He's saying, where were you when I did all these amazing things? But the point is, he's getting Job to change his perspective. He's saying, Job says, um, I want to see the management. My life has been mishandled. And God says, look at everything I'm managing. Look at everything that I'm handling. And you think I can't handle your life? Like, trust me. Like, look at everything that I'm doing. All the intricacies of the world. And it, it, it's amazing. The things that he talks about and the animals and the creatures. It's beautiful. He says, if I'm managing all that, I can manage your life. I can be just in your life. I can, you know, I can be wise in your circumstances. You can trust me. And ultimately, this, this tour of creation convinces Job, changes his mind. He's been asking God to explain his life, and God never does. He, explains, he talks about the cosmos, and Job says, okay, because he understands how that God's worth, that God is, God is capable of, of handling all of this. He understands the scope of God and how worthy God is. And when you declare how worthy someone is, the word in Greek for that is worship. Worship. So what this tells us is that the wonder and complexity of creation should inspire us to worship. Not only should it inspire us to worship, but it absolutely has inspired us to worship. Do you know that the idea of an atheist scientist is a very recent one? Historically, it is a rare, it is a rare uh, occasion. Because for so long, the people who have been doing the science and who have been inspired to learn more about God's creation are the people who want to understand God better. One of the oldest and one of the best observatories in the world is in the Vatican. Um, there are all, I mean, the person who developed, uh, the, who started the science of genetics was a, was a pre, or, or as a monk working in his garden. And that's just a couple of, I mean, there's so much that has been done in, in world history by Christians in terms of learning about the world that is inspired by wanting to know God better. And I think we need to be reminded of that that this is a beautiful thing for us to, to, to praise God through, through understanding His creation. That being said, Scripture also wants us to be clear on the limits. On, that there's only so far that our learning of the universe, studying about the universe can lead us to truth. And this is another great poem in Job, in Job 28. Job is talking about wisdom, and here's what he says. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. 
So you, you can't find wisdom. You can find knowledge. You can go take your submarine to the deepest ocean. You can take your spaceship to the farthest depths of space. You can go into the depths of the rainforest. You can dig into the foundations of the earth. Wherever you go, you can acquire knowledge, but you won't find wisdom there. How do you find wisdom? God understands the way to wisdom, and He alone knows where it dwells. For He views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when He made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then He looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And He said to the human race, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. What's being said here, essentially, is you might be able to learn knowledge about things, but that doesn't constitute wisdom. Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, because God is the one who can tell us how we should use what we've learned, how we should use the abilities that we've developed. We have such a capacity to abuse what we've been given, and to have knowledge and abuse it is not wisdom. And the only way that we can truly know the way we're supposed to live, the, what we're made for, what we have these abilities for, is learning from God. And so our, our understanding of the world is never complete if it's just studying creation. It has to point us to the Creator. And it's ultimately by listening to the Creator that we become wise. So true wisdom cannot be found without hearing from and obeying God. But it's not just abstract notions about God that we need to be reminded of. And it's not just wisdom like like good sayings or good advice that we need from God. Uh, my dad is the one who really taught me how to preach. And his advice, one of the first things he said to me that really stuck is, remember to always bring it back to Jesus. You'd be surprised that it's actually sometimes like you write a whole thing like, oh wait, <laughs> you need to draw back to Jesus. And usually for me that's a sign that I'm, I'm covering something that probably shouldn't be a sermon, maybe a Sunday school lesson, but it's not a sermon if I struggle to bring it back to the gospel. And I'll be honest, I've written, I, I struggled with this sermon and wrote several very different versions, and the, the sticking point was bringing it back to Jesus. You realize, well, if, if bringing it back to Jesus is the hard point, then maybe what we're talking about is not a salvation issue. Maybe it's not a, maybe it's not, it doesn't play the role that we think it does. But, it, it, but there, what we're talking about today absolutely does bring into the gospel because Paul has been tracking. The Apostle Paul has been tracking with all these poems that we've read. Most of what the Old Testament says about science and about creation is in poetry. And Paul has been tracking with all that. And Paul has one more thing to add to this whole witness of Scripture. And he does it in the form of his own poem that you find in Colossians. Here's Paul's poem. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, there's a reference to Genesis in there because in two places in Genesis 1, it, it talks about authorities where the sun, moon, and stars rule over the day and the night and human beings have authority over creation. That's a theme in Genesis 1. So he's connecting Jesus with that. He says, He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The 
point of our study of the universe is not just to learn not just to learn facts, but it needs to direct us to God. It doesn't just direct us to idle speculation about God, but it needs to direct us to the very center of all creation and the discovery that at the very center of everything is Jesus. That it was created through Him. So all the credit that we give to God for what He created goes to Jesus too. It is created for Him, for the purposes of His kingdom, to accomplish that, what He was sent to do. It is sustained through Him. It is because of Him that the world continues to spin and the laws of nature continue to work. It is all invested in Him. And not only is He at the center of creation, but His death and resurrection are at the center of all history and are the most important moment to ever happen because in it we find the reconciliation not just of the human race, but of all creation. The universe revolves around Jesus Christ who created, controls, and restores all creation. And that's ultimately where all of this needs to lead us back. Our study of the universe is great, and it, it inspires us to love God, and it motivates us to learn from God, and so we go to Scripture to learn His wisdom, but ultimately what we find is what we, is we are pointed to Jesus, and we need Him most of all. That is where all of this is meant to lead us. And that's really important, because we're going to look at some last concluding thoughts I'm going to send you home with that I want you to remember. And this is really important, because this is something that's been very, uh, caused a lot of tension in my life. The focus of Scripture is not on revealing scientific facts, but on revealing God through Jesus Christ. We have to remember, this is basically the same sermon as last week, with just a different, different material. It's all about meeting Jesus. And I remember very clearly when I was a kid, I was taught how important it was to get Genesis 1 right because that was the foundation of everything. And I very clearly remember an illustration that I saw in multiple different versions. So they, they had got new illustrators to make it, where there were these two castles having a battle. And the one castle was, was atheism and communism and socialism and, and all the evil of the world. And the other side was Christianity. And the foundation was Genesis 1. And the top was Jesus. It was the gospel. And the, the evil castle was shooting at the foundation. And the whole point was, the only way you're going to be able to be a real Christian in the world is if you believe about Genesis 1 what we believe about Genesis 1. That is absolutely not true. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of Scripture, is Jesus Christ. Christ. And if we get Genesis 1 right and Jesus wrong, what's the point? Right? What we need is Jesus. And that means that there also needs to be room for us to disagree about the things that aren't foundational. I had people when I was a youth pastor tell me my one job as a youth pastor was to make sure that everybody came out of my youth group believing in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. No. The point is for them to love Jesus. And I've said this before. The way I measure whether they love Jesus is whether or not, one of the ways, is whether or not they'll worship next to people who interpret Genesis differently than them. Because each one of us has that challenge of figuring out how are we going to reconcile what we hear from Scripture and what we hear from science, and we're going to land in different places. And that's okay as long as what's central stays central, and that's Jesus. There are certain theologies that really need you to interpret Genesis one way, but the gospel needs you to believe in Jesus. 
The next thing I want you to remember, I want to speak to any anxiety that we sometimes have that science is going to disprove God. Because there are people out there, there are atheists who say, we have the theory of evolution and that makes God superfluous. That means we disprove God because we don't need him. Which proves, that's just a very scientist way of looking at it, that the only reason we believe in God is as a theory to explain the origins of the universe. That's not how it works for me, at least. I, I believe in God, and if I believe in God, He must have been the Creator. It wasn't because I needed to figure out where everything came from, so I checked some sources in the Bible. It was because I had an encounter with Jesus, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I've seen Jesus transform lives, and He's transformed my life. But it also shows a disconnect in how science and religion are talking to each other, because ultimately, well, the only thing science can really do is talk about how the world works. It can't go any farther than that, no matter how people try to push it. And it doesn't matter how things work, uh, or how things work is not going to change whether or not I praise God for making them work. Right? In the end, science cannot disprove God. It can only bring Him glory by displaying His greatness. It's not like there's an impressive way to create the universe and an unimpressive way to create the universe. Like, oh, he did it in seven days, 6,000 years ago? That's amazing. I couldn't do that. Oh, he did it in billions of years through different products? Oh, I couldn't do that either. It's still amazing, and it still brings glory to God. No matter what we find out about how God did things, it's still amazing, and we still bring glory to Him. Okay, so my wife, when we got married, was convinced that I was judging her meals based on how hard they were to make. So she would make delicious meals and apologize because they were easy. And I told her, honey, I appreciate the work that you put into my meals, but if it's delicious and easy, that's even better. Because I, 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 I can't do it. I couldn't do either, either meal, so I'm amazed either way, and, and thank you, right? It doesn't change my level of gratitude. It's the same thing with God. It's not like how he did it determines whether we're going to give him credit or praise. No, what, what we learn as we learn about the universe is just the details of what we're thankful for. It's not going to disprove him or that he's done it. The last thing that is really important for us to, to keep in mind, we do have a tendency to turn science into an idol. And you can tell by the way we talk about it. A lot of the rhetoric going around today, we're trying to cast in different, you'll be different issues where we say this side's pro-science and this one is anti-science. And we'll have people say, I believe in science. Or, or this, in this house, we trust science. Which is a lot like saying we trust literature. Right, because there's all kinds of literature, and there's been all kinds of literature throughout history. Literature isn't a thing that you trust; it's it's a thing people do, and maybe you trust some of it, maybe you distrust others of it. Science is not a thing, right? It's a method that human beings use to learn more about the universe, and sometimes it's good and well done, and sometimes it's bad and poorly done. We've had some really ridiculous scientific notions in the past that we move on from, but it's not this thing that like dispenses absolute truth to us. Right? It's, it's a method that human beings have to understand the world better, and it's about as fallible as human beings are. And that's important for us to remember because we put our hope in science, and we think science is going to make my life better, science is going to make my life longer, science is what's going to fix the problems that I'm afraid of. The thing is, science can't fix the problems that really matter. Science can make your life longer, but it can't make it better. It can make, it, it can make you live longer, but it can't give you purpose. It can't do the things that really, it, it can't give us what really makes life matter. Our true hope is not in human wisdom or accomplishment. It's not what we can figure out or what we can do, but in the wisdom and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus that the questions that really matter are answered. It is only through him that the things that really need doing were done. It is only through him that we can learn the purpose of our life, however long it is. 
It is only through Him that we can learn the purpose of the abilities that we have, whatever they are. And it is only through Him that our lives can actually matter. And so we have to put our hope in Jesus Christ above everything else. As we close, each week we give you an opportunity to, to take next steps. And the first next step that we're involved in this is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, He is the hope that we have. And if your life, if you are in search of meaning, if you're in search of purpose, Jesus is the one who can give it to you. He's the only one who can give it to you. What you were made for. And so, if that's you today, we encourage you to come forward and give your life to Christ during our final song. If you're watching online, you can get in contact with the church office. You can talk to a Christian that you trust. But today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, and you, or if you just want to know more about this church and getting connected with us and what we do and how you can get involved, we have Connect classes once a month. The next one is July 11th from, uh, from 1230 to 2. You can sign up for that with your connection card. You can find out more about becoming a member, getting involved, and what our church is about. We also encourage you to join a small group. Small groups are, are essential to seeing ourselves through crises of faith like this. What got me through my crisis of faith was having people that I trusted that I could talk to. And that's what small groups are meant to create, is those relationships. And finally, we're always led to give back in the kingdom of God. And so if you would like to join a service team, find a way to get plugged in and help others, you can check that on your connection card as well. So I encourage you to consider one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.